Good morning, everybody. Welcome this day to a beautiful day. I'm speaking to you from the uh, streets of Virginia, Arlington, Virginia. It's a beautiful, beautiful spring day. We have a tree up here called a redbud tree that blooms beautifully for a few weeks here in the early spring, and they're everywhere. Just these red trees around here. So we're having a good day, and it's a lovely day. And I want to just welcome you for a moment to this to this time of Bible study and let you gather yourself. And as we approach the word of God, just give God some glory. Let's let pray for a minute. Lord Jesus, we adore you with all our strength. We love you. We welcome you to this time of biblical consideration. Thank you for your word. Oh, we do thank you for your goodness to us, for the joy of a restful night and a good day ahead of us. We confess that we want to be better people, more knowledgeable of your word, yes, but more than that, more gentle and more kind. And we'd be so grateful, Lord, that we would serve you to the best of our abilities all our days. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this ministry. Thank you for Ricky and Jonathan and all the people associated with having this a time for us to come together here. So we praise you and bless you and honor you this morning. Amen. Today, beloved, we're going to be looking at a a, a book named Galatians, attributed to St. Paul. It's a, a letter of with six Chapters has been divided into six chapters after the time of Paul. It was divided into six chapters, so to speak. And uh, when you look at it, you you say, "My goodness, what in the world is going on?" Because it's uh, what we call a stern letter. Paul is gets very stern and scolds these people for various reasons. And we're going to get into the heart of that, beginning to get to the heart of it. Not quite in the heart of it. That'll be for others to come behind me. But Galatians is is a divided, like I said, into six chapters. But to study it in, in an outline form, you've got the first one and two chapters are his personal words to his his people there in Galatia. Then three and four is his the heart of his doctrinal teaching. <clears throat> and five and six or excuse me, his practical exhortations to to the people, what he wants them to do. He gives them the the, the he gives them the buttermilk and then, then he gives them the sour gall tree. In other words, he tells them how, how wonderful they are, then he, he blisters them a little bit, and then he wraps it up by telling them what he wants them to do in response to it. It's a it's a a, a letter that's not uncommon with Paul. Some of the Corinthian correspondence is called stern. One of those is a stern letter. Uh, but he has a sense of mission that is theological this morning. So we've been studying the book of Acts and enjoying ourselves running along the the, the, the dusty roads of all over Greece and Turkey and everywhere. 
And the narrative of the book of Acts is so pleasant. A lot of times it's, it's struggle, but it, Paul struggles in Acts, but he goes from one event to the next and the next and the next from beautiful. It's, it's just so wonderful. Uh, underscores the, 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 the beauty of Paul's ministry. This, on the other hand, is not that way. It's not a narrative about where he's been or where he's going so much as it is a message straight to a specific crowd. We don't know who the crowd is. We know that it may be more than one church, maybe several churches. We don't know who it is it's written to especially. We know have some idea of where, where it was right in the middle of, of Turkey where he had planted a lot of churches. But it's there that this, this letter takes place. I'm going to read the second chapter, then I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Here we go. Book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 1. Then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again. This time with Barnabas and Titus came along too. I went there with definite orders from God to confer with the brothers there about the message I was preaching to the Galatians, to the Gentiles. I talked privately to the leaders of the church so that they would all understand just what I had been teaching and I hoped, agree that it was right. And they did agree. They did not even demand that Titus, my companion, should be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Even that question wouldn't have come up except for some so-called Christians there, false ones really, who came to spy on us and see what freedom we enjoyed in Christ Jesus, and to whether we obeyed the Jewish laws or not. They tried to get us all tied up in their rules, like slaves and chains, but we did not listen to them for a single moment, for we did not want to confuse you into thinking that salvation can be earned by being circumcised and obeying Jewish laws. And the great leaders of the church who were there, had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their being great leaders made no difference to me, for all the same to God. In fact, when Peter, James, and John, who were known as the pillars of the church, saw how greatly God had used me in winning the Gentiles, just as Peter had been blessed so greatly in his preaching to the Jews, for the same God gave us each our special gifts. They shook hands with Barnabas and me and encouraged us to keep right on with our preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. The only thing they did suggest was that we must always remember to help the poor. I, too, was eager for that. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him, publicly speaking strongly against what he was doing, for it was very wrong. For when he arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who don't bother with circumcision and the many other Jewish laws. But afterwards, when some Jewish friends of James came, he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore because he was afraid of what those Jewish legalists who insisted that circumcision was necessary for salvation would say. And then all the other Jewish Christians and even Barnabas became hypocrites too. Following Peter's example, though they certainly knew better, when I saw what was happening 
and that they weren't being honest about what they really believed and weren't following the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter, you are Jew by birth. You long since discarded the Jewish laws. So why all of a sudden are you trying to make these Gentiles obey them? You and I are Jews by birth, not mere Gentile sinners, and yet we Jewish Christians know very well that we cannot become right with God by obeying Jewish laws, but only by faith in Jesus Christ to take away our sins. And so we too have trusted Jesus Christ that we might be acceptable by God because of faith, not because we have obeyed Jewish laws. For no one will ever be saved by obeying them. But what if we trust Christ to save us and then find we are wrong? And that we cannot be saved without being circumcised and obeying all the other Jewish laws. Wouldn't we need to say that faith in Christ had ruined us? God forbid that anyone should dare to think such a thing about our Lord. Rather, we are sinners if we start rebuilding the old systems that I've been destroying of trying to be saved by keeping Jewish laws, for it was through reading the scripture that I came to realize that I could never find God's favor by trying and failing to obey the laws. I came to realize that acceptance with God comes by believing in Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, and I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the real life I now have within this body is a result of my trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not one of those who treats Christ's death as meaningless. For if we could be saved by keeping Jewish laws, then there would be no need for Christ to die. There ends the reading of this portion of the stern letter, chapter 2. Well, we were doing fine until he exploded, ready right around verse 4. Uh, and then on through the chapter, on through the second chapter. So chapter, again, remember, is, it can be outlined as 1 and 2. It's a personal words. See how personal these words are in the second? It gets real personal. And then 3 and 4, you'll get into the doctrine. And then 5 and 6 is, is things that he wants them to do. Now that outline is by a fellow named Charles Swindoll. And Charles Swindoll is a Baptist preacher. And I don't know too much about him, uh, his preaching, but he's a good teacher. And he has a collection of things you'll find in your computer if you look him up, particularly on Galatians that are very meaningful. And one of them is this one, two, three, four, five, six outline I just stated. That's his, and I need to give him credit for that rather than trying to steal it. So Chuck Swindoll is his name. He's an older man now, but I think he's retired. But he does real good with this with this subject here. Now, I'm going to take a what's called a pastoral approach. I gotta get down heat off of this thing because I see this all the time, or I used to when I was pastoring churches, where people would get the you know the, the socks in the bunch because they had some particular view about one theology and somebody else would have another view about another theology, and they'd get to arguing and fussing and fighting about it, and then they'd throw me down in the middle of it to see what I could do with it, you see. And a lot of times, I would just get ate up if I got on one side or the other. 
So I learned very early how to be able to tolerate people's different views long enough for you to be able to get together with them and, and make some sense out of them. And the way you do that is you love them. It's love. Love is a way. God in Christ is a loving way. You won't find Jesus doing an argument like this. He would have left by now. Because, see, here's the thing. The Judaizers, the people who believe that even though you were trusting in Christ, you needed to have some sense of Jewish law. They were called Jewish Judaizers. They had, it was just the Jewish religion with the Messiah, Jesus, tacked onto it. Jesus and the Messiah was an addition to what they believed. I want good enough for Paul because he saw it another way. He saw them trusting in the law rather than Jesus for their salvation. And he believed that you didn't need such things as circumcision and other parts of the ceremonial law of Judaism. Paul is thinking ceremonially here most of the time. And, and Jesus, a time or two, uh, comes against ceremonial law, like the Sabbath day. Uh, but there's power in the law. Don't think that you can throw the law away and pick up the gospel and go on with life. It won't work that way. And another thing, if you're ignorant of the law, and, and many Christians are, we've been told this so much that we don't know anything about the law. Do you know the Ten Commandments? If I hold up my hands in front of you, that's number ten, see? That's how they learned it. The Decalogue is ten. Do you know the law? Before you say you don't need the law, maybe I would recommend to you that you observe what it is. And if you look at my my uh, fingers uh, uh, moving from my left or, or your right, I guess it is, my left. See the little finger there? Little finger here? Okay, can't tell them apart. That one. See that little finger there? If you start counting from that little finger, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you will see seven on that hand. Well, you see what's on that hand? Number seven in the commandments? There's a wedding ring on there, see? Well, that's to remind us that the seventh commandment is what? Don't commit what? Adultery. That's there for you to remember. See? That's the seventh commandment. What's the fourth? Remember the seventh day? Well, see, if you don't know the law, don't knock it. The, the Hebrew would spend all day long studying the law and find God in the law because that was all they had to do with. That was all they had to work with. And there's power in, in the law, but it is strong, strange. The book of James. See, James turns this thing on his head. On his head, James says, hey, if you say you believe in Christ and have faith in Christ, that's a good thing. But on the other hand, you don't have good works. Well, Faith without works, he says, is dead faith. Just dead faith. And I've seen dead faith a lot of times. Rather than a lively faith, people that claim to be trusting in God, but just as mean as a rattlesnake. Have you ever seen them? I have. Well, I can tell you, that's not right. Now, the problem here is these two sides are <coughs> are talking, uh, uh, what they call talking past each other. Just talking past each other. A lot of arguments are like that. To see it particularly in politics, people will be all be talking about one thing, and but the whole time they're talking about two different things. And that's what this is about. Paul is more or less talking about ceremonial law, 
while thinking about moral law. And, and others are thinking that if you, you just accept Jesus as Savior with no law, you're, it's an idolatry. Because the Lord thy God is one, you see. Not four or five. And you can't have two. We've got to have one. It's one. So both sides are, in a sense, correct for talking past one another. Now, this is before the days when that was all known much about, but talked about. But there's some interesting things in this book of Galatians, and this is one of them. When we talk about this law, how to <coughs> excuse me, take a pastoral glance at theology, because this letter's talking theology. And in order to get into it, you're going to be ready to be light on your feet and uh, not get down into a stance where you don't know uh, what you're about. See, in these words, we are told that circumcision, on the one hand, is unnecessary. On the other, they're told that it is. Well, for thousands of years, Judaism was based on the covenant. And the covenant was best expressed in circumcision. Now, and, and, and But you couldn't sell that to Gentiles. I mean, my gosh, you go to town and say, hey, would you like to be a Christian? Wonderful. First thing we need to do is circumcise you. Is that okay with you? No, it wasn't all right. I believe you'd choose another religion if you had that choice, you see. Well, many of them had to face that fact and deal with that fact. And so this is an aggressive, assertive Paul working against Judaizers or people of the faith of Judaism who were then Christians also, Jewish Christians they they were called. Now, if you don't have law, like Paul, Paul was not saying that they didn't have law. He still believed in the moral law, but he wasn't separating them at the time. Now, if you do that, you are going to fall into the, you don't have any law, you're antinomian. That is to say, you don't have any law. And when you don't have any law, you believe anything comes down the line. You become what they call latitudinarians. And in John Wesley's day, in the, in the 1700s, he was very much opposed to people running around with these views. And there were a considerable amount of them. He called them gospel preachers. He said, uh, the last thing we need is a bunch of gospel preachers and, uh, and making themselves popular because they don't stress the law. He insisted that you preach grace and law. See, there's a conjunction there. Grace and law. Don't have the two parts. So see what what Christianity would would grow to do theologically is pull these two variants more and more and more together and then more and more separate as time went along. Saved by grace through faith alone. The power of inference in here suggests that Paul was up against it. It seems as if he may have been outnumbered by this negativity, by this desire to have some law to hold on to so that they could teach it to their children and not be confused by it. One verse I want to call your attention to is at the second chapter, looking at the verse 5, where it says, but we did not listen to them for a single moment, meaning the the, uh, Jewish Christians there, 
For we did not want to confuse you in thinking that salvation could be earned by circumcision and obeying Jewish laws. See, there were some people who thought that that, that, that was all that was necessary. And he didn't want them to get confusion by thinking that that was even possible to be saved by the law or by circumcision. So if you, if you just, you could just, on the basis of that, reject Jesus. On the basis of Paul's teaching, on the other hand, you could simply reject the law, or ceremonial law, and in that event, see how they're passing one another in the same argument? And the second verse I wanted to show you was uh, uh, on in chapter 2 along about verse 16, uh, where he, and I'm going down here where, where, to the conclusion of it because it's a long verse. And so we too have trusted Jesus Christ that we might be accepted by God because of faith, not because we have obeyed the Jewish laws. And here's the kicker, for no one will ever be saved by obeying them. <clears throat> you need to take that last part of the verse, say it over and over and over and over until you get it in your brain. For no one will ever be saved by obeying the law. You could put that there. No one will ever be saved by it. that alone. You won't be saved by that. That's what he was trying to get across to them. And then the third little verse I wanted to just call your attention to verse 21 at the conclusion of the chapter. He says, I'm not one of those who treats Christ's death as meaningless. For if we could be saved by keeping Jewish laws, then there would be no need for Christ to die. So you see, he, he was of the feeling that what they were doing was taking away the necessity of the cross. Jesus came specifically to die. Didn't come teach you so much about, he taught us a lot of things, but he came here to die. He came to die on the cross for me, for you, for your relatives, for your, for everybody you know, even the Judaizers, everybody, people in jail, everywhere. He came to die, he died for everybody. Not everybody appropriates his salvation. See, now the Judaizers were not appropriating the salvation of Jesus. They were including some laws about different things, and that was not what Paul thought was right. And boy, if he thought it wasn't right, he would let you know, and he does in this stern letter. One of the things that's very interesting here is in the opening opening of the second chapter, he makes this statement. Fourteen years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas and Titus came along. That just that just that statement. Fourteen years. Where did he go? Well, he went into Arabia. We're told, possibly to the little town of Pella, where he spent some years there before he was ready to go. That's a long spell. You won't find that in the Book of Acts. Book of Acts history in there and the history in here differ somewhat from one another. Now, another thing about this thing that creeps out of here is the Apostle Peter. There's a little hint here that Peter was a very conflicted person. He was conflicted. He, he didn't know quite what to do. 
he was eating with the Gentiles as long as there were plenty of them there and none of his friends were around. But when other Jews came from Jerusalem, I don't know how they got down, but they came and it affected Paul. I mean, Peter. He, he moved away from table fellowship with the Gentiles into the table fellowship of the Jews because, of course, they were eating according to ceremonial law and Peter felt convicted by that. But to feel convicted sometimes means you're conflicted. And that's what was his, that was his thing. You see here, he doesn't quite, he doesn't quite yet know where he belongs. He has possibly a little bit of an identity struggle going on. I don't blame him. I don't don't blame him. I think it's quite possible that in those confused days that he would prefer the fellowship of his friends than eat with them. But boy, see, Paul saw that as just awful. Oh, Oh man, he went to town on that. And, but maybe he didn't deserve all that thunder. You understand? Paul is very volatile. He has a, a tendency to, when he gets aggressive, he's not passive with it. Not like Aunt Mary, you know. If you, you get Aunt Mary mad at you, she won't bring you no pie at Christmas time. <laughs> That's passive aggression. Not, not this man. No, sir. But he, he's direct and blunt. And he, he's brief. He don't go, he doesn't go on all day long. And he, but Peter's not like that. I think it's very wonderful because no two people are like. No two people have the same theology. They're always going to be different. Just give, give love a chance. Give it time. A, approach people in a more pastoral way. The law is a tutor. It leads to Christ, he says. John Wesley said this, that the sacrifices of Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law, but the moral law was still very much in effect. And uh, that, that's true, still, still very much in effect. But there was no process then for dealing with disagreement so much as it is now. There are processes around so we could just make this fight just public. You know, Ricky talked about this and talked about how he had a fighter's heart. And that's the truth in that boy. <laughs> he sure does. But that don't know, fighting doesn't always win the day. Most of the time, it's, it's gentleness and the guidance of the Lord and the Holy Spirit that brings people around in time. And he does in time come around to that sense of the love of God. But, um, I guess maybe the message today, if there is one, is to give consideration to who it is that you're in contact with and how it is that you can be more gentle in your persuasion. I one day was putting gas in my car and sit in two young Mormon missionary men walked up to me and wanted to tell me about their gospel. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. I said, why don't you meet me in my office tomorrow morning and I'll talk to you about it. And they said, okay, where do you live? And I I told them, I gave them the address of the church. And the next morning, these two young Mormon missionary boys who were on the road on bicycles for a whole year trying to convert people come walking into my office with, with their bike helmets in their hands, <laughs> looking all around at me. And they said, said, you're the pastor of this church and you want to talk to us. 
I said, yeah, you young men, you you might sit down here and we'll talk a little bit. And we did, and we talked a while, and we didn't talk much about the Bible. I, I said, you know what, I got some 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 Coca-Cola's back in the refrigerator, and I got the, I got me some 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 leftover Easter eggs back there. I said, chocolate is good, too. Let's go back and eat some Easter eggs and drink some cocoa. <laughs> and they, me and the Mormons had a wonderful time. And the next day, I saw them again out at a McDonald's, nearby McDonald's. And they pointed me out in their conversation. And I could overhear them from a distance. And they said, he's a good man. He's a good man. He's a good man. <laughs> they didn't even know what I believed. Or what. It was such a wonderful thing. See, be gentle with people who are not your persuasion. Love those who don't love you. And be gentle with those that are. Find Jesus in your heart. This is a great letter. We're going to work our way through it. You're going to learn a lot of good stuff to help you in your life, to make you make you know that God is with you, and to help you not to talk past one another, and to be gentle when you get in an argument with somebody. That's that's what that's all about. Now, listen, our time is up. But I think you're wonderful, and I believe God is going to give you a really, really, really good day. I think so. I think my day might be better because I give up my coffee this morning for a glass of water. How about that? <laughs> I gotta get my, I gotta go find my coffee. I don't know about you. Well, have a great day. God bless you all, everyone. Hope I see you again real soon. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.